This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We're actually going to be looking at a lot more scripture than this, but we want to look, first of all, uh, as we begin this morning at verses 4 and 5, Exodus 7, page 49 in the church Bibles. Hear the word of God. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Let's pray. Almighty God, we recognize that you are the Lord. Father, we would not be like Pharaoh and say, who is the Lord? We don't, we don't know this Lord. We do know you, Father, by your grace. And we give you praise and thanksgiving. But Father, as we study these, these verses, these passages this morning, we pray that you would kindle in our hearts both a sense of fear of you, as the holy God, but also of great love for you as our Redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to study the plagues that the Lord sent in judgment on Egypt, or at least most of them. We're going to study plagues number two uh, through number nine. Uh, we looked last week at the first plague where the Lord turned the Nile and uh, associated water in Egypt into blood, striking right at the heart of that which made Egypt strong uh, and uh, prosperous, namely the Nile River. Uh, this morning we're going to look at, verse, at uh, plagues, rather, 2 through 9, and then, Lord willing, uh, next time get into the final plague leading into the Passover. Some of you will be disappointed that we're not going to look at the plagues one at a time, spending the next two and a half months studying plagues on Egypt. Others of you will be relieved that we're going to cover it on one Lord's Day. There's benefit studying it either way, of course, studying each one in depth or studying uh, the bulk of them together, as we're going to do this morning, uh, and look at the distinctives in each one and the similarities as well. Uh, and so that's, uh, with the Lord's help, what we'll do this morning. We need to recognize that these plagues rep- represent several things. They represent a battle between the Lord God and one who set himself up as the Lord God, namely Pharaoh. And uh, not just Pharaoh, but uh, other deities. And I say other because Pharaoh was considered to be deity in Egypt, God, uh, and other deities. 
These plagues also represent God's judgment on a nation in its idolatry, in its rebellion, in its sin. In many ways, uh, Egypt was no more deserving of the judgment of God than any other nation. We see God's judgment fall on Egypt here, but it fell on other nations as well. Think of uh, God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, which uh, Mike read earlier of Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement that the Lord is the one who reigns uh, in, in opposition, perhaps, to, to a Pharaoh's stubbornness. But we also need to recognize that while these plagues represent a battle, while these plagues represent uh, judgment, these plagues also represent God's mercy. Say, how so? Well, in a couple of ways. Number one, God's judgment on Egypt was not as severe as it could have been. In fact, there's indication through these, some of these plagues that God was holding back. But particularly, these plagues were God's mercy on Israel, on the Israelites enslaved for so many years in Egypt. Because while to the Egyptians these plagues meant destruction and judgment, to the Israelites, while these plagues may have affected them, and in some cases perhaps did, in other cases did not, they represented God's prying Egypt's hand loose to let his people go. Pharaoh's hand loose off of the Israelites to let them go. And so keep that in mind as we think about these plagues, sort of the bigger picture. Battle, judgment, and deliverance. Well, let's look at them then. I read uh, sort of the introduction to them, chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Pharaoh won't listen, and so God is going to lay his hand on Egypt, and he's going to bring them out through these great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians will know that that Isis is not the ruler, that Ra is not the ruler, that Pharaoh is not the ruler, but they will know that the Lord is God. And by his mercy, we will know the same thing. Well, we looked at uh, the plague of blood in chapter 7 last time, so let's turn our attention then to chapter 8, where we find the second plague, the plague of frogs, in uh, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. See, in verses 1 through 6, the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you will not, then... I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up into your house, your bedroom, on your bed, and in the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens, yuck, and into your kneading bowls. God is, is spreading it out, making sure they get the picture. Frogs shall come up on you, Pharaoh, and on your people and on all your servants. And that's exactly what happens. It's accompanied with this demand to let them go, but if not, then these these frogs will be everywhere. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 3, the Lord says to Moses, remember, Moses is like God, to Aaron, who is his prophet, Moses' prophet. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what he did in verse 6, and the frogs came up. Now, this is all the more remarkable, given the plague on the Nile River and how rancid and nasty it had become, that these frogs were there. Now, as is the case with these plagues, uh, either specifically or generally, the gods of Egypt are being attacked. They're being exposed. And that's the case here. The Egyptians actually regarded the frog as a symbol of divine power, 
as a representation of fertility. Uh, in fact, associated frogs with certain gods and goddesses. One goddess, major goddess of Egypt, was Hecat, depicted as a human being with a frog's head. That reminds me of the mascot for Texas Christian University, the horned frog. Looked like the creature of the Black Lagoon patrolling the sidelines, frightening small children wherever he went. Well, this is, uh, this is Hecat, like a, a person's body, a frog's head, uh, spouse of another Egyptian deity who was thought to fashion human bodies on a, on a potter's wheel. And then Hecat would come and, and breathe life into these people. Curiously, Hecat also had the responsibility of controlling the multiplication of frogs in the river by protecting the crocodiles that would eat the frogs, to keep the crocodiles that would keep the frog population in check. But you see, Yahweh, the Lord, overwhelms Hecat, demonstrates her inability to control the frog population. You see, a Hebrew God, the Lord, is the one who's able to cause these frogs to grow all out of proportion, all out of control, and overwhelm Egypt. Now, as is often the case with these, uh, Pharaoh calls for his magicians either to deal with it or to explain it, as, as they sometimes do in some ways to duplicate it. Uh, verse 7, the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now notice... Again, as with the blood, they can't make it better. They can't make it go away. They can't fix it. They only make it worse. They made more blood. The problem wasn't that they needed more blood. The problem was they needed to get rid of the blood. They can only make more blood. Here, the problem is not they need more frogs. They need to get rid of the frogs. But all the magicians can do by their secret arts is develop more frogs. Verse 8, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. Now, earlier it said he called for the magicians. Well, here he's calling for Moses and Aaron to come. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, and I'll let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. He asks them to pray. And verse 9, Moses says, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants, for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you. Now, Pharaoh's lying. He has no intention of letting them go. He just wants the situation fixed. But notice Moses gives Pharaoh the advantage. You tell me when these frogs are to be taken care of, Pharaoh. Moses is trusting the Lord at this point. And he just says to Pharaoh, you let me know when you want it to happen. And that's exactly what he does. And so Moses um, asks him this, and Pharaoh says in verse 10, tomorrow. That's quick. But, Moses says, be it as you say, so you may know there's no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs shall go away from you. This is verse 11. And from your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile where they belong. Now, they didn't just go away. They were dead. Dead frogs everywhere. They were having to shovel them. They were having to get rid of them. And the place smelled really bad, just like the Nile when it turned to blood smelled really bad. Uh, Israel stank with these frogs, which is, as you read through this, especially if you read it carefully, uh, you can pick up some of the language. Remember, the people of Israel came to Moses and Aaron and said, you've made a stench before Pharaoh. 
Well, now with the, first with the Nile, now with the frogs, the Lord is turning Israel into a stench through the blood and now through all these frogs. The frogs died and they gathered them. And the land stank, but predictably, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart, would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, remember, the Lord's told Moses again and again, this is what's going to happen. So that was the plague of frogs. Third plague that comes along in chapter 8 also, verse 16, is the plague of gnats. Now, unlike the other plagues, this one was not announced. There was no audience with Pharaoh. It just happens in response to Pharaoh's recalcitrant heart, his unwillingness to keep his word. And so that's exactly what happens. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth so it may become gnats. In all the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 17, there were gnats on man and beast. The dust of the earth became gnats. It's transformation. And as numerous as the dust was, now it's become these insects. Gnats is a translation. Other, other renderings uh, name them as lice or just vermin or maggots. Uh, gnats is probably as good a rendering as any, especially if you've ever been plagued with noceums, you know, that just bite and bite and bite, very annoying. And these may have been more severe even than that. Uh, and even here, uh, that their deities of Egypt are being attacked because they believe that magic was stronger than the deities, that these secret arts of the magicians, verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. They couldn't. So for the first time, they fail. They simply can't duplicate what has happened here. So there were gnats on man and beast. And notice what the magicians say in verse 19. They say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, they're speaking generally. Remember, the Lord revealed his name as Yahweh, the Lord, to Moses. And Moses speaks in the name of the Lord. But here they simply ascribe it to the, to the finger of God, general term for God. They acknowledge that there is power here. They cannot do anything about it. They acknowledge it's greater than, than they are. This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He wouldn't listen to them, as the Lord had said. Here he wouldn't even listen to his own magicians or recognizing a greater power than they at work here. So the third plague of gnats comes and then the fourth plague, also in chapter 8, a plague of flies. Now, again, here uh, we have Moses going and confronting Pharaoh. Verse 20, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. Now, remember, that's what happened with the Nile River. Pharaoh was going to the Nile. Is he still going out to worship Hopi, God of the Nile, despite the fact that God was totally humiliated? The Lord turned the river to, to blood. Maybe so, maybe he's, again, he's just going out to bathe, we don't know, but he's going out to the river. Say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, the ground on which they stand. So similar perhaps to the gnats, uh, but now flies, the implication is a stinging fly, maybe a mosquito or some sort of stinging or biting insect, horse flies maybe. Well, those can be miserable. 
But also notice something different here, distinctive, that comes in with this plague that's specifically mentioned, whether it was true with the others or not, here it's specifically mentioned, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, the region in Egypt where the Israelites had settled when they came down when Joseph was uh, prime minister of Egypt. Now, Goshen is not an Egyptian term. It's a Hebrew term uh, for that area in which they settled. But God makes a distinction. My people will not be plagued with these flies so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I'll put a division between my people and your people, and tomorrow this sign will happen. The Lord did so. Great swarms of flies come in. The land was ruined by these swarms of flies. Now, there was a god in Egypt, the god Kepher, that was often symbolized by a flying insect or flying beetle that may have been the god that was targeted uh, here. It was a god seen as a god of resurrection. And um, Pharaoh doesn't call for his magicians. Verse 25, he calls for Moses and Aaron and says, Go, sacrifice to your god within the land. Won't even use his name. Again, general term, your god, whoever he is. Moses, notice he says, within the land. Moses says, no, that wouldn't be right. Uh, he's not willing to do that. He recognizes this treachery. In fact, Moses literally says to him, not right. No, wouldn't be right to do so. For the offerings we sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. They were held to be sacred, these animals. So if the Hebrews were slaughtering and offering up these animals, the Egyptians would be offended. But he recognizes, Pharaoh's just trying to hedge it a little bit. Okay, you can worship your God, but do it within my land. Moses says, not right. Not good enough. Not going to happen. Not going to do it that way. And so, um, predictably, verse 28, Pharaoh says, I will let you go sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness. Just don't go very far away. Plead for me. And... Uh, Moses, you know, he knows what's happening now. Into verse 29, only let Pharaoh not cheat again uh, by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And so he went out, Moses did, prayed, and God removes the swarms. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, earlier it said his heart was hardened. Here it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's worth listening just to the different variations, how that was stated. So he had these flies, these biting flies that came, went. Pharaoh's showing some weakness or maybe just more an effort to manipulate. Uh, and yet Moses is wise to him. And the Lord does answer Moses' plea and removes these flies. Now we move into chapter nine with the fifth plague, death of the livestock. Now, any number of Egyptian deities are attacked here, bull cults, which were fertility cults in their orientation, of course, different names, Apis, Bukis, Nuis. Uh, bull was a bull was sometimes used as the embodiment of the, the sun god Ra in Egypt. Uh, some female deities were also depicted by Livestock, not sure what they were thinking there, but that's what they did. Uh, Isis, queen of the gods, was sometimes depicted with cow horns on her head. Hathor, given a cow's head for her task of protecting the king, some of the deities that would be depicted by livestock. And so maybe one reason livestock was singled out for destruction. 
So Moses goes into Pharaoh, verse uh, 1, chapter 9, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And if you don't, verse 3, the hand of the Lord will fall. Now notice this isn't, as the magicians put it, the finger of God. Moses says the hand of Yahweh will fall. Not just his finger. The hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague on your livestock. And again, verse 4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing happens to all the people. Uh, all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die, shall not die. The Lord set a time. Didn't ask Pharaoh. The Lord sets the time. Tomorrow this will happen. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, that's curious, especially what happens later where uh, you have livestock that was later destroyed or affected by a later plague. Well, when it says all the livestock of Egypt, it, it may mean every single one of them, but apparently not. It may be contrasting it with the fact that not one of the Israelite uh, cattle was, was harmed, but all in terms, of, in terms of hyperbole, as if all of them were killed, so many were, but there were still some others, or all kinds Without exception, various kinds of livestock were all affected by this. Apparently, there were some that were left. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, he wanted to investigate, sent somebody over to Goshen. Not one of the livestock of Israel is dead. But still, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he didn't let the people go. So no reference here to his magicians. Just uh, sending somebody out to go see what was happening in Goshen. Sure enough, their livestock were fine. Israel's, uh, Egypt's livestock was dying. Moses is still hardened. This is one hardened heart. Sixth plague, boils. Chapter 9, verse 8. Uh, again, no presentation before Pharaoh this time, just the beginning of the plague. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. They just start the plague in front of him. The kiln. Why was a kiln significant? What was done with the kilns? What was Israel, Israel's task in Egypt? What were they doing? What were they making? Bricks, yeah. And to, uh, to firm up the brick, you had to fire it in the kiln. And so it may be that this soot from the kiln uh, represented pretty closely Israel's oppression as uh, they were forced to make bricks and then later, as you know, forced to make bricks without straw. And it's as if the Lord says to Moses, take these handfuls of soot, the symbol of Israel's oppression, and throw it into the air in front of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so that's what they did. Moses threw it in the air, became boils, became... These, these sores, in verse 11, the magicians couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils. The boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Not only could the magicians not stop it, they themselves were afflicted by it. They couldn't stand before Moses and Aaron. They were, they were before a power far too great 
for their magic arts. People have speculated, was this anthrax, smallpox? Um, we don't know. We do know that it was painful sores on the body, whatever medical classification you want to give it. By the way, this plague, even though it seems relatively like one of the minor ones, given how much ink it gets in Exodus, actually became kind of a byword. Apparently it was so miserable that it became a, a byword uh, later in Israel, Deuteronomy 28:27, which Deuteronomy was given as sermons of Moses to prepare the people after 40 years in the wilderness now to go into the promised land. This is what he says. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed if, if they are not faithful to the Lord. So apparently this one, even though it doesn't seem to get as much attention, made a, had a pretty big impact. Because Moses re- refers to that uh, as, as coming upon Israel if they are disobedient. Now, the magicians can do nothing, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, predictably, verse 12. Or does he? Verse 12. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is responsible for his own sin and hardness of heart, but as we go through, it also acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign over all things, including Pharaoh's action, including Pharaoh's heart. And he wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Seventh plague is hail, uh, chapter 9, verse 13. Again, present yourself to Pharaoh. Let my people go, that they may serve me. This time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me. By the way, when it says, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, literally it says, stand before Pharaoh. Now, just a couple of verses ago, the magicians couldn't stand before Moses and Aaron. But Moses and Aaron would stand before Pharaoh. So some things going on, kind of on a low-level wordplay here as well. But notice verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here the Lord says, yes, it's bad. You think it's bad. It is bad, but it's not as bad as it could have been. I'm essentially continuing to spare you to show my power through you. Wow. God says, it's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as it could be. I'm keeping you around to demonstrate my power through you. And so there's this, there's this plague of, of hail that is, is promised here that's going to come down because, verse 17, you're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. It took a lot less than this to humble Nebuchadnezzar, right? About this time tomorrow, I'll cause very heavy hail to fall. By the way, the heavy term occurs over and over, applying to how the dust covered Egypt, the heaviness of the hail. Well, that's often a word that's used to describe Pharaoh's heart. That, too, is sort of a play on words. Pharaoh's heart is heavy, indicating it's hardened. But these plagues are also heavy. You have this hardened heart, I'll send you these hardened plagues. Essentially, the the play on words that's taking place here. Verse 19, now therefore get your livestock, there's still some left, and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Now notice verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Pharaoh's heart is hard, but these people are trying to protect what they have left. And it says they do fear the word of the Lord. By this point, I should think many of them do. And they're trying to protect what they have left. Verse 21, whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Even that the Lord announces it in advance and, and tells them to protect their stuff is his mercy. And some of them do that to protect their livestock from the hail. Now, magician, uh, or Pharaoh's response here, he does not send for the magicians. He doesn't send anyone out to check on Goshen. But he does acknowledge, verse 27, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. Now, that's striking that he acknowledges his sin because the Egyptians believed in the purity and the sanctity of their ruler, Individuals who approached Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves on the ground, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground, approaching Pharaoh, invoking this perfect God, exalting his pure beauty as they came into Pharaoh's presence. God is attacking this notion of Pharaoh's characters being pure and untainted. Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Now, is this a saving confession? No. But he is acknowledging that what he's done is wrong, at least at face value, plead with the Lord. Here he does use the, the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God. He doesn't just refer to your God, whoever he is. Plead with Yahweh. Plead with the Lord. There's been enough of this, and I'll let you go and stay no longer. Moses says, verse 29, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. Thunder will cease. No more hail, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. Dominant theme here, not just the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, but that you, Pharaoh, that you, Egypt, may know that the Lord is God, that the Lord rules, that your deities are being exposed as imposters and as unable to stand before the Lord. Notice this also, the Lord's mercy in the midst of judgment. Verse 31, the flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. I read once an objection someone had, said the plagues of Egypt couldn't be real. Because if, if the Lord had wiped out all of their grain, they would have all starved to death. Obviously, this couldn't be real. Well, right here, it says, while he wiped out what was there, there was other that was still in, in, in yet to come up, yet to sprout. And it wasn't destroyed by the hail. And it did come up. There was still food. The Lord's mercy was seen even in the midst of judgment. And that's clearly specified here. They are late in coming up. And so we assume after the hail had destroyed all the other, this uh, crop did rise, did grow. And there was food to sustain Egypt. At this point, the Lord is simply demonstrating he's the Lord. They say, well, hail is a natural phenomenon. It is. And that raises the question of these plagues. Some, I think, are, are specifically and directly supernatural, that the water becomes blood. But hail is a, a natural phenomenon. And, and what's supernatural about it is that it occurred exactly when the Lord said it would. 
and it was so destructive in its power. Yes, hail occurs, we have it here, but here it happens specifically when Moses, via information given him by the Lord, said it would happen, showing the Lord's control even over these natural forces and phenomenon. The eighth plague, chapter 10, locusts, more bugs. Chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, I've hardened his heart, the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and the signs I've done among them, that you, Moses, and your descendants may know I am the Lord. This is so Egypt knows, but it's also so Israel knows. And descendants of, of Moses in this generation would, would hear, tell of what the Lord did in Egypt. And so they go into him and they ask, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. If you don't, I'm going to bring locusts and they're going to cover the face of the land, and whatever's left after the hail, they will eat it, and eat every tree of yours that grows, and they'll fill your houses, the houses of your servants, bugs, all over the place. And so that's exactly, of course, what happens. And in verse 7, even notice now, the, the servants of Pharaoh say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Counsel to Pharaoh, just let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Very similar situation, reading a history of the Nazis, the Third Reich, and in the last couple of years of the war, Germany was clearly losing. They simply were not able to produce weapons, uh, aircraft, uh, tanks, in the numbers that the Allies could. And it was becoming clear to, uh, to the generals that the situation was dire. Then any time they would bring it up to Hitler, he would accuse them of being defeatists, uh, cowards. He'd relieve them of their duties, put himself in charge. Actually, Hitler was a great asset to the Allies in his mania for micromanagement. Uh, he was a real hindrance to his own cause. We're thankful for that. But uh, very similar situation. They basically would come to him, don't you see that Germany is in ruins? Going to fight to the end. Well, that's essentially Pharaoh. His own servants are saying, look, do something. Egypt is, is a wreck. It's in tatters. So, verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, all of us. <laughs> verse 10, he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Pharaoh actually invokes the name of the Lord in this cynical and hardened way. The Lord be with you if I ever let you go. Anyway, they were driven out, Moses and Aaron were, from the Lord's presence. And so the locusts come, verse 12, stretch out your hand. And the locusts come and they devour and they destroy in this, uh, this awful plague of locusts that came. But verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he didn't let the people of Israel go. Then we come to the ninth plague, plague of darkness. Chapter 10, verse 41. The plague itself begins with no announcement, no audience with Pharaoh. Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Why heaven? 
Remember, stretch it out over the land of Egypt. Stretch out your hand toward heaven. Why? What's in heaven? What's in the heavens? What gives light? The sun. Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And so he did. And there was this intense darkness, pitch darkness, peculiar in its thickness, its density, its heaviness, just this black darkness. And you see the nature of it, the miraculous nature of it, is distinction between Egypt and Israel. Verse 23, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And uh, Pharaoh calls Moses and says, go serve the Lord. Your little ones can go too. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. Well, that's a problem because that's what they were going to sacrifice. You also have to let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, Moses replied. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Take them to serve the Lord. We do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let them go. Now, Amun-Ra, the sun god, was Egypt's chief deity, and here's a a clear blow against him. His rising in the east was a sign of life, resurrection, his setting in the west indicated uh, death, the underworld, and at the will of the Lord, darkness comes. Amun-Ra is hidden, he's unable to shine. Upon his worshippers for a space of three days, it was dark in the land of Egypt. A, a pitch dark, not just dim like an eclipse or something like that, but this, this supernatural darkness that comes over the land of, of Egypt. Because the Lord is the author of light. You see that from the very beginning, Genesis 1-3. The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light even before he created the sun. God is not dependent on the sun to provide light. Now, he has set it up so that the sun does provide his light, but ultimately, the sun is not the source of light. The Lord is the source of light. And he causes there to be light in Goshen, but there's darkness over the rest of the land of Egypt. And things have kind of come to a turning point here. Pharaoh has had enough. And the Lord hardens his heart, verse 27, he wouldn't let them go. Verse 28, Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. You come in here again, Moses, I'm going to kill you. Which, by the way, doesn't that kind of remind you of Jesus and, and Lazarus? You know, He raises Lazarus from the dead as a sign of who he is. And they want to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus rather than believing in him for who he is. Get rid of the evidence. Moses, if you show up here again, I'm going to kill you. As if Moses is the problem here. And the day you see my face, you will die. Verse 29, Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And with that, the stage is set for the final plague, uh, which the Lord uses to bring them out of Egypt, and we'll save that, Lord willing, for another time. But what are we to make of this? What do the plagues say to us today? Well, they say a lot to us, as we've said earlier, uh, the Lord's superiority over all other human-made deities, the Lord's judgment on those who oppose him, the Lord's grace to those whom he delivers. 
But those things serve as a foreshadow of the coming judgment, of judgments we experience now, but ultimately the coming judgment at the end. In Revelation 16, it talks about these uh, bowls of the wrath of God being poured out. And you have echoes uh, in some of them of the plagues on Egypt. Revelation 16, 2. The first angel went, poured his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Uh, as we saw last time, 16, uh, 3 through 6, uh, the blood, the bowl poured out, it became blood of a corpse. Every living thing that was in the sea died, poured out this blood into the rivers, uh, and, and they became blood. Also, again, in, in 16, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. His kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Like Pharaoh, they simply cursed God. They, they wouldn't repent. They just resented God who judged them for their sins. We need to recognize in the plagues of Egypt uh, signs, foreshadowings, however you want to put it, of the judgment of God that has come on people in places since, that is coming on the whole earth in the last time. Now, as we read these, we tend to identify with Israel. Just pulling for the underdog, just because Israel's the good guys, whatever it may be. But we need to recognize that except for the grace of God in Christ, Except for repentance of faith in Christ, you and I are Egypt. You and I are Pharaoh. Now, he was a historical figure. But we need to read the the plagues on Egypt, apart from the grace of God, in the place of the Egyptians. Because, dear friends, apart from Christ, those judgments and more are coming our way. We need to repent. We need to believe in Christ. You see, God's judgment either falls on wicked people or it has fallen on the cross, born in the person of Jesus on the cross. And those who take refuge in him are spared. You see, God preserved Israel by his grace. Israel, as they proved soon after they left Egypt, were really no better. They grumbled. They complained against God. They made idols themselves. God spared them solely by his grace. You see, apart from Christ, we too are under the wrath of God. We too will experience the judgments of Egypt and worse unless we are covered by the cross. So what is the response then to these things? Well, I think it can be put no better than what Mike read earlier in Revelation 18, verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. Who is her? Come out of Babylon. Come out of this world in its idolatry, in its rebellion, in its unbelief. Come out of Egypt. Come out of this world, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Dear friends, the scripture set before us the cross of Christ of a Savior who bore the plagues, the judgment of God in himself, that those who believe in him will not experience those things, but will experience the blessing, the protection, the covering of God. God's word to us this morning in light of these plagues is come out of her. Come out of this world that's under the judgment of God. Come out of her, my people. Flee the wrath to come. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we read these plagues and we don't have to think long about them to think how awful these things would be. And yet, Lord, we're amazed at how hardened Pharaoh's heart was. Father, we should be amazed at how hard our hearts can be in the face of your word, in the face of your providences. Lord, give us grace to humble ourselves, to recognize that you are the Lord, to give ourselves fully to you in love and obedience. Father, we thank you for Jesus who bore the judgment that we deserved so that we could have the life of blessing and joy and eternal happiness that he deserved, that he won for us through his obedience. Thank you, Father, for these chapters that we have looked at. We praise you, Lord, for your glorious justice. We also praise you, Lord, that for all of us who believe in Jesus, that justice was satisfied in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.